Well, we're going to continue a series that we've been in this summer uh, on the book of Hebrews. Uh, my name is Derek McCollum. I'm the pastor here, by the way. If I haven't met you, I would love to. Uh, we're glad to be together asking God to open his word to us, to speak to us through his word. So if you will, if you've got a Bible, open it to the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 10. And listen now as I read from God's word, Hebrews 10, starting in verse 1. It is printed in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along there. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Jesus, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. And then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you've neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ Jesus once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declared the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. He then adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for your word that you have spoken to us, that you have not hidden from us, that you have revealed to us what you want us to know about you. And we are thankful, Lord, for this sacrifice that has been given on our behalf. Lord, open your word to us today, that we might come under it, that we might find our lives under its authority. Open our blind eyes and our deaf ears, soften our hearts, that we might know Jesus more fully today. We pray this in his name, amen. Well, we are gonna talk today about forgiveness, about the concept of forgiveness, what it means to be forgiven, and then to forgive others. Maybe you have uh, been around resentful people, people who hold grudges for long times. Maybe your friends have been around a resentful person who holds grudges for a long time. People who hang on and say, you know, it's just so hard for me to forgive. I don't think I could ever do that. I don't think I could ever let go of the wrong that you've done against me. I heard a story not too long ago uh, on the radio. It was about a meeting between two people. 
And these two people, uh, what they had in common was their parents were both involved in this really terrible incident together. It was the hijacking of a plane, a terrorist event. And everybody on this plane was actually killed. It was a horrific time. And the thing that they had in common, both of their parents were on this plane, but the thing that was really different about them is that one was the son of a victim and the other was the daughter of the terrorist. And in this meeting that they had together, it was really beautiful actually to see them come together and to forgive and even to struggle with that. In fact, there was a lot of struggle on the part of the daughter of this terrorist. She was 13 at the time, and she recalls how even after this event, she went through lots of counseling, and she even asked, you know, do you think that I should be sterilized for all time so that I can't have children? She did not want this kind of evil perpetrated by her father to somehow be fulfilled in her life and in the lives of her children afterwards. She felt so guilty about it. You hear the question that she's asking herself? Can I be forgiven, even for something maybe that wasn't even mine, but can I really be forgiven by people, by God? We were in Charleston earlier this year, which is a fabulous place, had a great time, and in just driving through downtown Charleston, drove by the Charleston AME Church with that horrific shooting not too long ago. And it reminded me even of the time that in court, when this shooter was being tried, And this incredible time where where the sister of one of the victims actually in court got up and said in front of everyone, she stood and she looked at this shooter, this man who had terribly taken so many lives, and she said, you took from me my sister, something special. I will never get her back, but I forgive you, and I pray that the Lord would have mercy on you. Now, you know, at first when we hear that story, at first when I hear it, I think, that's amazing. What beautiful forgiveness. But, you know, really deep down, I'm asking a different question, which is, really? Because could I really do that? Could I actually forgive someone for that kind of heinous act? We're asking ourselves those questions all the time, aren't we? Can I let go of things? Can I forgive other people? Can I be forgiven for the things that I've done in my life? There's a person in my life who I've known for a long time, and he has a history of holding grudges. He has a history of being resentful. He has a history of being a hard person and not very forgiving. Guess who it's really hard for me to forgive? That guy. It's difficult, isn't it, to deal with forgiveness, to struggle with that question of whether we can be forgiven or whether we can give forgiveness. The answer for us is found actually in Hebrews 10, where the writer to the Hebrews proclaims something very simple but very profound, is that Jesus has forgiven and he has enabled forgiveness. Jesus has made forgiveness possible for us. He has done so fully and finally. He has forgiven our sins and that has enabled us then to pour out forgiveness to others. It's the heart of the gospel, that Jesus has done something that we cannot do on our own, that he has actually taken the burden upon himself that we cannot bear. Jesus has truly forgiven us, and that changes our hearts. The argument that's kind of laid out here is really in four parts. He first kind of begins this argument by laying the foundation that's been laid really over the 
previous chapters too, that real sin needs real forgiveness. That there's no such thing as just kind of sweeping it under the rug with God. Real sin needs forgiveness. And then he moves on to say that the law, the system of the law that was laid out in the Old Testament, the Levitical law, did a lot of good but could never really bear the weight of those real consequences, bear the weight of the sin of the world. But third, that Jesus has actually done something that the law could never do. And fourth, that that changes our hearts. It changes the way that we forgive ourselves, the way that we deal with forgiveness, and the way that we forgive others. So we're going to unpack that a little bit today, those kind of four things. Here's the first one, is that real sin actually needs real forgiveness. Look again at verse 3. But in these sacrifices, and he's talking here again about Old Testament Levitical sacrifices, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. See, the Bible again lays out the very unpleasant truth that we are not who we should be, that we are not who we desire to be, and that we are certainly not who God desires us to be. The Bible lays out the truth that there's something that's standing in between us and God, and that thing is what we call sin. If that word is new to you, that's fine. It just simply means that our motivations, our desires, our actions, our thoughts, the whole of our being is tainted with the desire to work outside of what God has revealed as true and right. Or you could say it another way, that it's the way that we live without reference to God in all that we do. Or another way, that it's the way that we think that the beautiful way that God has laid out before us is somehow too much to constrain us. That instead of being worshipers, as Adam and Eve were called to be, that we desire to be gods as Adam and Eve desired to be. It's nothing new. It's been with humanity since the very beginning, is that we oftentimes desire our flourishing outside of what God has said leads to flourishing. That's what we're calling sin. And sin is an important thing that actually stands between us and God. Now, you know, there are different levels kind of of being wronged, aren't there? There are different ways that we can experience being wronged in our lives. For instance, if I was at the store shopping, turned the aisle, and you came around the corner and you accidentally bumped into me, well, in some sense you've wronged me, right? But, I mean, really, you didn't mean to. It was an accident. It can very easily be remedied with, I'm sorry, that's fine, and then we go on about our day and nobody cares. It's no big deal. No harm done. Now, think, though, if I had turned that corner and you were coming speeding down, you know, riding the cart with, you know, no feet on the ground, and you had run into the back of my leg and some sharp part of the cart had actually sliced my leg and I needed stitches, well, that's a bigger deal, isn't it? You're still not trying to harm me. There's still no malicious intent, but I'm really wounded. It hurts. I've got to go to the hospital, I've got to get stitches, I've got to pay for that. There's damage done. Now take it even a step further. What if I'm shopping and I turn the corner and actually you've been there waiting for me with malicious intent? You got a knife and you jump out desiring to hurt me, desiring to inflict pain upon me. That's a different story, isn't it? Here's the problem with the way that we understand sin. Usually when we think about our own sin, 
we think it falls into that first category. But the Bible says that it actually falls into the third. In fact, in that third example, you're not just an innocent bystander, you're, you're an enemy. You desire my harm. You know, that's actually the word that the Bible calls those who have not yet been redeemed by Christ, those who are outside of Christ, he calls enemies. The Apostle Paul says, before you knew Jesus, you were at enmity with God. That's a problem, isn't it? Now, like any good story, and the Bible is a good story, like any great piece of literature, and the Bible is a piece of great literature, and much more, there's going to be conflict. That's our conflict. There is something wrong, and it's wrong with us. So what's the solution? Well, here we come into that kind of second part. This idea of the law, and when I say the law, what I'm talking about specifically here is the system of being made right with God, particularly laid out in the book of Leviticus, but elsewhere also in the Old Testament. And we've gone over this a few times during this series, but really Leviticus is there to show God's people, how can I actually live with a holy God? How can an unholy people live with a holy God? How can we be made right? Well, the truth is that though there were wonderful benefits from the Levitical system that enabled God actually to dwell with his people, it was never meant to actually carry the full weight of the sin of the world. Listen again to these verses. Here's verse 1 that we just read. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. See, the Levitical law actually was supposed to do something good. It was to provide a way for God and his people to be united together, but it was always supposed to be the outline, never the full picture. It was always supposed to be the stand-in. It was like the IOU that gets placed there knowing that there's going to be real payment in the future. It was the picture, not the reality. And the folks that are actually being written to in this young church, this is again, remember, probably a young church in Rome, and they are being persecuted by the Roman government, and their temptation, their strongest temptation, is to turn away from the truth of the gospel and to turn back to the Judaism that they knew before. And the argument here is how foolish that would be. Because what they're turning back to is just a picture. Imagine if your wife went on a long, month-long trip, right? And you had a picture of her, and you kept it by your bed, and that picture reminded you of her, and you got to think fondly of your wife every time you saw that picture. But when she returned, you would never say, hang on, i got to go spend a little more time with the picture. That would be foolishness. The real thing is here. You would never fall in love with the picture when the reality is present. And that's the argument here that this writer to Hebrews is making. He is saying, the real thing is here. It's been pointing this way all along. You've got the picture, and the picture is great. But the picture was supposed to do something. It's supposed to prepare you for the real thing. The dots are there. 
The outline is there, but now we have the fullness of the beauty of Christ and what he has done, so why would you ever go back to the picture? Now, I'm going to venture to guess that in this crowd, we don't have a whole lot of people tempted to go back to Judaism. But boy, we sure make a lot of other pictures for ourselves, don't we? Maybe that picture is my moral performance. It's my moral performance that really gets me right with God. And I'm looking at that instead of looking at Jesus. Maybe it's my theological acumen. I've got it all lined up. I know it all. Everything makes sense to me. And that's what makes me right with God. Or maybe it's theological disgust. I don't have to do all that. I don't need to know the depths of theology or any of those things because this is what makes me right. That stuff will just corrupt me. What's the picture that we're putting in place of God? Now, maybe for you, this is also a picture of what you're putting in place of the idea of forgiveness. I'm not going to forgive you, so I'm going to insert instead passive aggressiveness. I'll keep you at arm's length thinking that I will somehow kind of earn some sort of payment, right, for the ways that I've been wounded. Or maybe it's me kind of trying to balance my books morally. And as long as I'm just a little bit in the black, then I think that things are okay. If I can do enough good to balance out all the bad that I've done, then maybe finally things will kind of balance out and we'll be all right. I heard a story the other day about a a woman named Sarah. Sarah was a very wealthy woman, she, uh, she lived on about $1,000 a day income, plus she had about a $20 million inheritance. Now, that's really wealthy in today's terms, but this was actually the late 1800s, okay? So in those times, this would have made Sarah really a billionaire now. She was incredibly wealthy. She was powerful. She had influence. She had a lot of weight to throw around in society. She was also very lonely. Her husband died early. Her one child died And she moved, probably because of her loneliness, from Connecticut to San Jose, California. And it's there, actually, that the story starts to get interesting for Sarah. Because when she was in San Jose, she she bought this old farmhouse, and the farmhouse had, I think, 160 acres attached to it. She bought this big plot of land with this farmhouse on it. But from day one, from the time she moved in, she actually hired a team of craftsmen, uh, of, of, of carpenters, of builders, to work, some biographers would say, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the next 30 years, building her house, adding on to this house. And she continually added on and added on and added on. Now, the interesting thing about this house is that it, it had no, there was no architect involved. So there was no overarching understanding of how the house should work. It just was these little bits and parts that just kept being added and added. At one time, it was seven stories tall. There were corridors that would lead to nowhere with no rooms attached to them. There were staircases, beautiful, ornate staircases that would wind and then just terminate in the ceiling. There were doors that you would open up and it would just be a wall and it would just be nothing. There were rooms and rooms and rooms. Weird things like every window had 13 panes. Every chandelier had 13 bulbs on it. Uh, By the end of her time finishing this, (laughs) this was what the house was like. It was 24,000 square feet. It covered six acres. The house covered six acres. Six kitchens, 13 bathrooms, 40 stairways, 47 fireplaces, 
52 skylights, 467 doors, 10,000 windows, 160 rooms, and one bell tower. Now, maybe you've heard about this house. Sarah's name was Sarah Winchester. She was the heir to the Winchester fortune. Her father had invented the Winchester repeating rifle. And you're wondering, why on earth would she build something like this? Well, what most of her biographers would say is that the reason she built all of these crazy rooms was that she was building rooms actually for ghosts. She was building rooms for dead uh, American soldiers and dead Native Americans killed by those soldiers. And she thought that she was visited by them. Guess what they were all killed by? Winchester repeating rifle. This woman with this immense fortune had an immense guilt. And literally her guilt haunted her until her death. She was haunted by those that she felt responsible for. Now you may sit and think, how absurd. How absurd to build some crazy house for these people uh, to come and visit. That's never going to take care of your guilt. How absurd to use passive aggressiveness to somehow earn some sort of payment from your spouse. How absurd to think that you could balance your moral books and somehow end up ahead. How absurd, isn't it, to do any of these things that we oftentimes think is the picture, this is the thing that's going to save me, this is the way that I will be justified before God, this is the way that I will be forgiven, here's the system. Just as absurd, isn't it? All right, so we have the bad news. We've got the bad news, maybe even just got a little bit worse. What's the good news? Well, fortunately, there is good news. This is what the Bible proclaims loudly over and over. There are echoes through the Old Testament, and it shouts in the New Testament. And right here, we hear that shouting so loud what Jesus has done. Listen to verses 11 through 14. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Friends, the good news is that Jesus has done what the law could not. Jesus has done what the picture could never do. Jesus has done what the things that we oftentimes insert in his place can never hold Jesus has given us real and full and lasting forgiveness. He is both the great high priest offering sacrifice and that great sacrifice to atone for sin. All of those dots that have been connected over the course of the Old Testament, they find their fullness in Christ. All of that pattern that has been established in the Levitical system with all of its sacrifices finds its fulfillment in Jesus who has done it once and for all. And it is full. There is nothing that it does not cover. God is not somehow looking on and said, yeah, I got most of it. But that one little thing that you deal with, I'm not sure I can forgive that. If you ever think, could God really forgive fill in the blank? The answer is yes. Yes, he can and he has in Christ. Does Jesus' blood actually cover fill in the blank? The answer from the Bible is Yes, 
Yes, it does. His forgiveness is full. And his forgiveness is final. It's done. It's complete. We don't come to church to somehow fill up what runs out over the rest of the week. That's sometimes our conception about church. That's not the way the gospel works. If Jesus has forgiven you, it's done. We come to be reminded because we're forgetful people. But his forgiveness has not run out. His grace does not leak. There's no crack somewhere that has to be complete, that has to be always kind of refilled by whatever we're doing. His forgiveness is full and it's final. I heard a story, a Spanish story about a father in Spain uh, who was at enmity with his son. It was a broken relationship. And this dad wanted so desperately, his son's name was Paco, his dad wanted so desperately to be reunited with his son who had left and left the house and really run away and he had not had any communication with him. So after multiple attempts to try and find and reach out to Paco, he ended up taking an ad out in the paper saying, Paco, this is your father. I love you. I forgive you. I want to be with you. Meet me at such and such place. Well, when the father showed up to meet his son, 800 Pacos were there. There's a deep longing, isn't there, for us to want to be made right, to be forgiven, to be loved. Friends, Hebrews 10 is the letter from your father that says, I love you, I forgive you, I want to know you, I want to be with you. Come to me. Real sin, real problems, the law can't fully handle it. Jesus has done what the law could not do. And here's the fourth thing is that because of that, it actually changes our hearts. Our hearts change because of what Jesus has done for us. Listen to these words again, and you, and you heard Matt read them earlier, and you heard me read them before, but listen to the beautiful hope of the new covenant. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts. I will write them on their minds and then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Friends, the Bible says is that if Jesus has forgiven you, he has also done something amazing. He has replaced your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And he has written his law on it. Not the never quite good enough law but the fulfilled in Christ law, the completely forgiven, totally forgiven, forever forgiven law. And he has written that on our hearts that we might actually be driven by it, that we might move to that new rhythm, that we might be those who then in response to what he has done for us can actually love and forgive the people around us. You know who Harry Connick Jr. is, the musician? He's really kind of the guy that brought back big band swing. He's a fabulous musician, jazz musician. He's a great piano player, and he's a great performer. Well, I heard this story told about him that he was playing in this concert hall one time. Uh, he's playing to a bunch of people who, I mean, pretty much resemble us, which no offense, but stiff white people is probably the best way that you would uh, describe these folks. And they're there, you know, enjoying the concert, and his band, you know, as they're all from New Orleans, they're playing this really funky New Orleans jazz, you know, and it's fun, and people, you know, they want to start moving their bodies. 
But being the stiff white people that they are, they start clapping, and they're clapping, but they're clapping on beats one and three, which if, if you've ever tried to dance, just go home and listen to a song and try to clap on one and three and just realize how stupid you sound. In most songs, there's four beats in a measure. One and three are not the places you want to, you want to clap. It's two and four. That's what feels good. Well, Harry Connick, being not only an amazing musician, but a great performer, he can't take it, okay? His, his, the musician inside of him just can't deal with these people clapping on one and three. And because his band is also so good, he seamlessly somehow just kind of makes eye contact with everybody in the band, and he throws in an extra beat in the measure, so that in this measure, there are five beats rather than four. Well, if you throw in an extra beat, what happens to the clap? It somehow magically changes to two and four. And now the people are like, yeah, yeah, this is good. They didn't do a thing. And it's all better. That's what the Lord has done with our hearts. He has changed them so that they actually might march and work in rhythm of the gospel. So that they might function, not out of function in that weird, I'm kind of off the beat clapping sense, but that they might actually fall into the groove of the gospel. That we might know forgiveness and that we might show forgiveness to others. This is what we're called to then. This is, this is the only response that's needed here. It's to simply tune our lives to the beat of the heart that we've been given. To tune our thoughts and our actions, our hands, our feet, to the beat of the new hearts that we've been given, so that we might pour out forgiveness for others as it has been poured out for us. Let me just leave you with a very small challenge, okay? Forgive someone this week, even if it's little. And when you do, let it remind you of the greatness of the forgiveness of Christ. Let it remind you that Jesus has laid himself down for you, that he has taken your sin upon himself, that he's done so fully and finally. And the converse is true too. Once you really realize that, let it pour out of you so that you can forgive those around you, so that we start to loosen our grip on grudges and resentment, so that we become those who begin to walk to the beat of the new hearts that we've been given. We pray with me? Lord, we do thank you for your goodness and your grace toward us, Lord, that you have given us new hearts, new lives. You've written your beautiful, forgiving law on our hearts. We ask that we would be those who would move to that rhythm, to that beat now. Thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll have a couple moments uh, simply to reflect on these things. Let me ask you to reflect on this question. Where are the places in your life this week that you can come to both know the deep forgiveness of Jesus more and to show that forgiveness to others? Think about that for just a few minutes.